you can also ask, where are we in this flow cycle right now? And you can point mm-hmm. to, oh yeah, we're in the we're in the struggle right now. This is a hard, this is supposed to be challenging. This is supposed to be yeah. difficult. Right. So you can you can also help people become cognitively literate of the flow cycle and start to again embrace the struggle. And the best part, I, I just I can't say this enough, Andy, and it makes me emotional actually even thinking about it, is that the flow that we experience as a result of going through the struggle, redeems the struggle itself. On the show today, Dr. Brent Hogarth. He's here to talk about the role that mindfulness, self-control, and being in flow can have on greatly boosting our well-being and productivity. As always, I want to thank you for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast. Whether you are a returning listener or a new one, I really do appreciate your time and energy. As the main theme of my podcast is to unpack and understand more deeply how high performers strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life, There is no better guest than my guest today, as he truly embodies what it means to live with authenticity and purpose in his life. In order for us to be our best and to utilize our talents and gifts in a way that allow us to serve the world, we must have clarity and vision. As well, we must be able to emotionally regulate ourselves and do the deep work necessary to thrive in any environment that we face, especially when confronted with hardship and adversity in our life. My guest today, Dr. Brent Hogarth, is a sport and clinical psychologist whose journey towards excellence began in 2010 when he traveled to India to live and learn in a Buddhist monastery. In Brent's own words, I learned how to live in the present moment for the first time in my life. Since his experience in India, he has seen how this one ability to be fully here and now enables professionals to truly fulfill their own potential and make their most desired impact on the world. Brent is an expert in training flow state, mindfulness, and self-control for both sport and corporate athletes and he has significant training and experience providing performance enhancement and mental health counseling. His work includes, but is not limited to, working with Olympic and professional athletes, serial entrepreneurs, members of the U.S. military, computer engineers, authors, hedge fund managers, and more. Brent's clinical counseling experience is vast, and he sees everyone as having the ability to be a high performer if they get the conditions right in their life. In our conversation, Brent is very honest about his past and the impact that growing up as a completely out-of-control youth had on him. He was charged with assault due to street fights, he failed academically, and struggled deeply with his own mental health. 
but it was through the process of discovering himself and developing deep self-awareness that he was able to realize his potential and find a path in life that has allowed him to give so much back to the world through his work. In our conversation, we speak in depth about the role that mindfulness and flow can have on helping us to become the best version of ourselves possible. And he really shares specific examples and practical strategies that we can all apply with regularity in our lives when we are pursuing things that matter most to us. And that might mean, you know, our role as a parent, as a spouse or partner, professional roles that we have, uh, or even the idea of pursuing hobbies and becoming the best version of ourselves in the individual pursuits that we have in our life. Brent is currently the head coach at the Flow Research Collective, which is a peak performance research and training organization co-founded by Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist. And Rian Doris, the Chief Growth Officer at Flow Research Collective and also an expert in peak performance himself. My conversation with Brent is long form and meant to be as we deeply unpack the conditions necessary for deep work and flow so that the listeners of my podcast can better understand how they can maximize their own potential and productivity both personally and professionally in their lives. Whether you listen to this one in one go or listen to the episode in bite-sized chunks, you are sure to gain a deeper understanding of how you can create the conditions necessary for excellence in your own life. It was a genuine pleasure to have Brent on my podcast. A very special thanks to him for his time and energy and to all of the listeners who choose to tune into this episode. And with that, let's jump right into my discussion with the inspiring Dr. Brent Hogarth. Okay, Brent, it's fantastic to have you on the show. And in advance to the conversation, I just want to say that you and I actually recorded a podcast last week, but we had some technical difficulties and we thought it would be better to re-record. And even though we had a great conversation, uh, there wasn't much flow to it because of the technical glitches. But I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to be on the show today and, and spend some time with me uh, unpacking your journey and, and sharing your wisdom and insight and lessons learned. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, I, couldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than right here with you and, and with your audience. So, uh, yeah, let's explore this, uh, this mission we all have, this drive to, to run our own lives, to be autonomous and to find meaning in it. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you again so much for inviting me on and uh, let's get to it. Yeah. And just a little bit of background is uh, you're my coach, actually. And as part of my training and, and seeking my executive coaching certification, I found um, Stephen Kotler's work at the Flow Research Collective, and and I'm in the midst of taking his course. So you and I have had a number of one-to-one -one, uh, coaching sessions together, and I've gotten to know you and your work and develop a friendship with you, and I have a lot of gratitude for that. So in advance to our conversation, I thought it would be good to start with a grounding activity, and I've never done this on my podcast, but... I know that you do this a lot, and it's a great way to kind of ground ourselves, you and I, for the conversation. 
but also for the listeners. Now, some may be driving and they might not be able to, you know, close their eyes or whatever. Some may be running, but if you can just do a general grounding activity for anybody, regardless if they're driving, running, or just sitting and listening, that would be great. So go ahead. Yeah, let, let's do that. So I'm just going to guide a short contemplative exercise. We won't even call it a, a meditation. And it's a simple structure that I learned when I was living in um, some Buddhist monasteries, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. And it's very, very simple. We're going to contemplate the preciousness of this moment of life. And then we're going to just set it at uh, intention that the benefits of our time here together uh, carry forward to benefiting others. And so in the Tibetan Buddhist lineage, they talk about finding enlightenment, being like a, a bird, which needs two wings to fly. Sorry, the wing of self-enlightenment and then the wing of compassion. So we're going to do that through the short meditation. And if folks are kind of new to meditation or whatnot, this can be a great structure that you bring into your own meditation. So wherever you are, let's just take a moment. You can close your eyes if you'd like. If not, just bring your attention awareness to your breath here. And in your own way, I invite you to just contemplate the preciousness of this moment, the preciousness of life itself. As my Buddhist nun taught me, living people die before dying people every day. Living people like you and I, Andy, and, and all those listening, we may die, we may pass before those who are in the hospital dying, those at the end of their lives. So let's just take this moment to recognize this preciousness of this human life and this opportunity we have to be here together. Now, perhaps with that sense of gratitude and urgency to use today in this moment to the fullest, I invite uh, us all to just set an intention that the benefits of this time together today itself, you know, carries forward and, and benefits those that we love, maybe the mission that we are passionate about. And whenever we're ready here, we can open our eyes and return back. And uh, thank you so much, Andy. I think the the grounding activity is something that I have, have tried to bring into some of the meetings that I run. Um, and I know it's a part of what's called adaptive schools, which is, you know, really starting with a grounding activity helps to center everybody, you know, because they hustle from one place to a, to the next. And very rarely do they have any kind of transition time or adjustment time. So there's a lot of value in that. So thanks for starting us off with that. Yeah, just just let me jump on that. Sure. Um, so when we, we're going to talk, I'm sure, a lot about flow today. And what flow is, right, this optimal state of consciousness, it's learning how to control the contents of our consciousness how to bring them from a state of of chaos to a state of order so i can imagine when when you say grounded right like get people grounded when they come to the classroom what i hear through kind of flow theory is how do we 
bring order to consciousness, right? How do we lower the chaos of everything that's going on in the day and just be here now so we can get absorbed and be fully present to learn, to connect, to play, to grow, whatever's unfolding in the classroom. So um, yeah, I appreciate kind of bringing that into the classroom. I'm sure it's not always easy with students. Yeah, no, it's not, but I think there's value in it when it's done with consistency. And it's a part of the routines and structures. So it's not a one-off thing. I'm going to try mindfulness with my students. It's embodied in everything the teacher does, the educator does, or the coach does. So it becomes common practice. You know, And I've seen some teachers do it with regularity. And I've seen some teachers just do it as a one-off thing. And the one-off thing has very little impact because they need practice uh, at developing the skill of sitting and and just uh, grounding themselves so for the listeners in the intro they've heard a bit about you but i'd like them to hear it from you directly so uh who are you where are you from and what are you most passionate about doing right on andy it's always interesting becoming very self-aware and sharing your own who you are where you are where you live i, I try to live outside of my head so much and, and self-conscious so it's it's a fun exercise so i'm from uh, vancouver canada uh, my name is Brent Hogarth. I'm trained as a sport and clinical psychologist. I did that means I did my master's in sports psychology. I did my doctorate in, in clinical psych, and I really focused during my um, graduate years on understanding how uh, understanding flow state and how mindfulness and emotion regulation can help us get the best out of flow and protect against its potential dark side so how we can get engaged in addictive behaviors or get engaged in high-risk behaviors that lead to a loss of self-control and, and this is you know based on my own life experiences is we all know people who go into psychology degrees their dissertation is typically them trying to find out a little bit about themselves and uh and so that's you know part of my story i grew up here in, in vancouver canada and Two older brothers, entrepreneurial parents. That means uh, I had a rough, tough house and a lot of freedom. And so a lot of time to get into trouble and uh, explore life itself. And I was, you know, I was a national gymnast uh, growing up. Uh, me and my brothers were all gymnasts, which is a lot of fun. Got a lot of flow in, in gymnastics. Um, was a big uh, skier, backcountry skier. I remember back in the day winning ski passes uh in big air competitions just a young kid hucking it in the terrain park um and then uh, you know around i don't know i'd say probably around 16 or whatnot i got really uh, into the hip-hop culture i was a, a pretty passionate graffiti artist uh loved just being in the elements of hip-hop so whether it's graffiti break dancing rapping uh just involved in in all four elements of hip-hop gave me a sense of of culture to integrate with and at that point um came with a lot of being part of a tribe in the community and uh which i think was part of me coming back to run your life individuating from society itself mm -hmm. uh, and, and and learning to become more an autonomous creative person um, which led to a lot of uh, growth for me and also some challenges. I was kind of in and out of court for not just graffiti, but other things in my life and eventually sent away to a military school in Ontario, close to where you are now. I'm not sure if you know Wellingport, Ontario. Uh, I heard of it. 
Yeah, it's about 20 minutes from Hamilton. It's uh, kind of like a boot camp. So when kids try to run away, they, they don't have a place to go. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that kind of led me on a path. And, and it was after my undergraduate degree, I read a, a Wayne Dyer book. I'm not sure if you ever read some Wayne yeah. Dyer. I'm sure, I'm sure you did. The Road Less Traveled? Is it The Road? Uh, what's the name of it? I forget. There's a few of them, but. Mm. So it was actually a really small book my mom gave me. It was uh, called like Seven Principles to Inner Peace and Happiness, something like that. It's like one of those tiny books. And it was the first time I had become kind of self-aware and, and aware of consciousness itself and, and spirituality. And it kind of lit this fire um, in me that led me to a Deepak Chopra retreat, led me to go to India, became a yoga teacher and lived in these Buddhist monasteries. And um yeah, to kind of go full circle, that led me into graduate school and led me to under, or to seek how to bring my passion for sport and high performance, uh, as well as mindfulness and being present uh, in a yeah, in a well-integrated fashion. Um, and so, yeah, since then, at graduate school, I've been the head coach for the Flow Research Collective for the last few years. And it's been an amazing experience coaching hundreds and thousands of executives, CEOs, entrepreneurs, creatives, military folk, you, you really name it, um, on how to find more flow in their life. So what that really means is how to become more absorbed and engaged in, in what they're doing, uh, how to boost productivity, learning, uh, really how to fully express themselves free from the tyrant of our self-consciousness so it's mm -hmm. been yeah an amazing amazing journey and um so happy to be yeah right here talking about it yeah yeah that's that's awesome to hear more and to provide more context for the listeners and you know i know your backstory and i know that you went through a lot of shit growing up and that you as you uh, alluded to going being in and out of juvenile courts and that dark side as you talked about and our good friend, Dr. Michael Gervais, who has been on my podcast, often talks about the fear of doing the internal work is harder than the work itself. You just have to get started doing the internal work. Mm -hmm. And when you think of your early struggles mm -hmm. um, and you think of the emotional triggers in your life in those early days that, that had you uh, expressing something, whether it be through street fighting or doing graffiti, mm -hmm. um, in what ways did you learn to deal with those triggers and what advice do you have and you can include some of the dark side research just to help us really understand what we can do when we're experiencing difficulty and going through hard times and having difficult times dealing with certain triggers just share your experience and how you learn to overcome that or are overcoming it um, and share some some tips or strategies my life changed when I was in India, sitting in, a uh, in the Gompa uh, temple, meditating. And I learned that my, my seeking to find self-acceptance of who I was, was a, a fool's errand. Because who I was trying to accept, this sense of Brent, this sense of I, who I thought I was, was not truly who I was. It was the ego, it was a conception, it was an idea. And once I realized that seeking to try to accept this ego as who I, who I am was not the correct path, uh, it freed me up. And, and how it freed me up is that I realized that that journey was over because I can accept myself 
for just being pure awareness, just fully here now. And that freedom to not have to accept all the things that I'd done in the past that were challenging, all the emotional traumas, all of that, um, it, it gave me flexibility to say, you know what, I can move in any direction now. I don't need to live up to how other people have seen me. I don't need to live up to who, who I've been in the past. And it, yeah, it gave me the, the freedom and, and the courage to express myself in, in a new way. And I'll tell you, Andy, you know, I was uh, probably 21 or so when I went to India and I came back and this was about, you know, 15, maybe, yeah, for at least 15, maybe longer years ago, yoga meditation for a guy that's been in hip hop and from Vancouver or whatnot, like this was not a popular thing. This is not like it is now. And, uh, and yeah, it, it gave me the courage to talk about meditation, talk about yoga, lead these, even though people were thinking, what the hell is Brent talking about? What is this spirituality? Yeah. I know Brent is this, you know, angry street fighter, you know, tough kid. Uh, and now he's talking about, you know, loving kindness. This is, <laughs> this is quite a shift. <laughs> so I, I would say to answer your question shortly, shortly and concisely is recognizing that as Carl uh, Rogers said, as soon as we can accept ourselves for who we are, then we're able to change. And, and that journey to accepting ourselves, who we are, I, I believe in my experience, it's not accepting that I'm brand and I've done this and that, but it's accepting myself as, you know, I am, I am pure awareness. I'm spirit. I'm soul. I'm something beyond just my, the experiences in my life. And, and in doing that gives us a lot of freedom and courage to, uh, yeah, to, to fully express ourselves in new and unique ways. So I'll start with there. We can build off that maybe. Right. And there's a quote that I want to share, which is uh, when the inner conflict ends, peace begins. And uh, another quote from uh, Florence Nightingale, which is how very little can be done under the spirit of fear. Mm, beautiful. How do those quotes resonate with you and your journey and your work and, you know, the importance of sitting with things, uh, sitting with whatever you have to sit with and to sit with the fear and the shame and the guilt and whatever comes up in a non-judgmental way? because we can often attach so much judgment and criticism to how we perceive ourselves to be in this world. So again, when the inner conflict ends, peace begins, and how very little can be done under the spirit of fear. So how do those quotes resonate with you and your journey and, mm -hmm. and uh, just share any insight you have about that? Yeah, beautiful quotes. Thanks, Tendi. Uh, they remind me of my favorite quote um, from Plato, uh, that the first and greatest victory is to conquer oneself. So for me, what that looks like in practice, uh, I found two ways to conquer the self and to move from a place free of fear. And, and that's the path of, of mindfulness and the path of, of flow. And so why that is, is because in both of these states of consciousness, we, we conquer the self, we, we transcend the self. And that's when I'm able to to move in, in, in flow. And, and, and so what does this really mean? So in a mindfulness um, state, it's a, let's imagine we're sitting at the edge of a river and we're watching the stream of consciousness move uh, and kind of flow in, in ahead of us. In consciousness, we conquer the self 
by not falling into consciousness, not falling into that river again, swept away by our fear or swept away by our shame or whatever that inner turmoil, as you pointed out, may be. And we're able to sit on the edge of the river and watch it um, with loving kindness, with openness, with acceptance. And in doing so, we can create, you know, even just a little bit of space between our sense of, as that spirit or soul or consciousness and what's unfolding in our internal world, our thoughts and images and, and memories or what have you. And so in flow or in, in mindfulness, we sit on the edge of the river, whereas in flow, this is the great gift and the challenge with flow is it's, it's almost as if we conquer the self uh, because we get so absorbed in that river we we jump head head into that river and we 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 allow ourselves to get lost in in the moment itself and and this is a, a peak state a peak experience where we're able to perform at our best um, because we, we we say yes to the fight we say you know what i'm i'm angry i'm, I'm shamed mm-hmm. and i'm going to transform this i'm not going to watch and witness it i'm going to let that emotion transform me to take some action and to just face it head on. And um, so that's for me, you know, what those quotes bring up is again, this path to conquering the self is in my experience, kind of two ways to do it, finding flow and being absorbed in one's experience or kind of learning how to be more mindful and observe one's internal experience without getting lost in it. And I, what my dissertation really looked at is how like an optimal theory of, of high performance is a balance between the two. So using mindfulness to observe, you know, what's occurring to, to regulate our emotions, to be present, and then to wisely choose, okay, what's the right activity for me to get lost and absorbed into and just, you know, send it, right? Just get fully mm-hmm. locked in. And then consciously have moments in our life where we're mindfully reflecting, okay, is it, was that appropriate? You know, is this, do I want to keep going in this path? And so this balance between mindfulness and flow uh, is what those quotes kind of bring up for me. Yeah. And I want to move more into flow soon, but I want to start with your life philosophy that's on your website and uh, you'll share where people can find you later, but your life philosophy, if it's okay to read it, um, is this. My philosophy to life is simple. Well-being is not only about alleviating suffering. In order to truly flourish, we must also develop our unique strengths, character, and virtues, as well as consistently experience transcendent peak experiences such as flow. And then you have a driving question that guides who you are in the work that you do. And the driving question is, how do we fulfill our full human potential? So... I think this is a good time to maybe say more about that question and why that question means so much to you, but then segue into the importance of doing deep work in our life. And I think this is where I don't want to go off on a long rant here, but this is what's made it such a difference in my life is like when I had gone through the, the things that I had gone through and and my struggles and which seemed like endless struggles earlier in my life, that I could never escape these struggles. Doing the internal work and then trying to find my purpose and meaning in my life led me to doing deep work with curiosity. 
and to venture down certain paths, but it was absolutely doing the deep work and losing myself in the deep work and not having the answers, but it just leads to more curiosity. And, and that's been my journey with deep work. And then taking the zero to dangerous um, coaching program has allowed me to better understand how I create the conditions for deep work in my own life. Mm-hmm. Instead of juggling, mindlessly juggling everything, I have control. I have an internal locus of control and I can design the conditions for deep flow. Mm-hmm. So it's meant so much to me in my work, but I just wanted to share my experience to frame up um, you sharing your experience and why that question, how do we fulfill our full human potential is so important to you? And then just lead us into what is flow and and anything you want to um, share more about to continue the discussion. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. Um, so to start off, you, you first mentioned um, this kind of credo of positive psychology, right? And, and so for a lot of people, People, when they hear psychology, they, they think of, you know, um, just maybe working on overcoming traumas or alleviating anxiety and depression, uh, negative states, kind of going from what we might consider kind of negative five, let's say to zero, like kind of reclaiming a sense of, uh, of some level of, of, of just calm or peace in their life. Whereas positive psychology, which Martin Seligman and the founder of Flow, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, I should get extra points for saying his name correctly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Have a hard time. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, um, yeah. what they introduced in, I believe is 1990, a first paper was this field of positive psychology, which again was the recognition that uh, psychology needs to shift from this just alleviating suffering to what makes a meaningful, a well-lived life kind of how to go from that zero to that positive five state, let's just say. And that was a, a massive shift in the field of psychology, the field that was very much so influenced uh, during wartime and helping soldiers and, and others, uh, you know, heal and cope with their suffering um, coming back from war. And, and that kind of over-indexed again towards this clinical field in psychology, whereas positive psychology again is the it's the intention that to live a to truly flourish we're not here to alleviate suffering we're not here to uh, eliminate sadness or anxiety and fears but rather how to allow those to be part of the human experience and to allow them to drive us to find deeper states of meaning of deep relationships of connection of flow itself and so I, I truly uh, love the field of positive psychology. It, um, it's a breath of fresh air to, to work on pe- with people who are focused on, on not necessarily getting rid of uh, traumas or anxieties and fears, but more so changing their relationship to them. And, and what I mean by changing their relationship to them, I mean... Uh, finding again that meaning that growth that comes with the challenges that they've experienced and so to come back to that that question that guiding question i on my website there how do we reach the deeper uh, our deeper nature and fully express ourselves um this this i'm going to introduce two concepts here that will help explain this we know that what's gotten us here won't get us to where we want to go 
we all develop these rules in our life of, of how to play the game that have worked in our past, whether they've worked because they helped us stay safe, they helped us connect, they helped us survive, um, they helped us grow, whatever it might be, we, we develop these rules. And, and unfortunately, what happens with these rules is our life can almost become governed by these rules. And again, while those worked to get us to perhaps where we are, what tends to happen for folks is that those rules become overly rigid and their mm -hmm. life becomes an act of playing out these rules, even though it might not be moving them towards living a meaningful life. And so what my work with a lot of folks is and, and with myself is constantly, how do we shift from a rule governed life? to a life that's driven by my values or by our values. How do, and that ties nicely into positive psychology where it's, we're not following rules to try to control or avoid emotions or pain or trauma or whatever it might be, but rather how do we include and transcend that as we move towards something that we find so meaningful that we're willing to burden the, the suffering that comes with that path. Can you, Brent, can I just take a time out and ask you something? I just want to double click on that idea of, of being governed by rules. So when you say being governed by rules, can you give us an example of what that actually looks like, a practical example for the listeners? So, you exactly. know, my as you say that, my interpretation is a rules that we place on ourselves based on past experiences and how we've come to see the world and our our place within it as well as rules imposed on us by society and culture. So I see it as a combination. So if, if I develop a rule such as I will never measure up to those around me, that is a rule that I govern myself by. Is that what you, what you mean? Can you just shed more light on that? Yeah, thanks, thanks for um, kind of double clicking on this. So we, we all unfortunately develop a rule like a general rule we'll start with that we want to avoid suffering. Okay. Yeah. And, and what happens now when you're in that situation that maybe brings up shame, I forget the exact example you gave shame yeah. or if we're, if your listeners are an example that brings up fear or brings up sadness or whatnot, uh, we have this rule that says I need to get out of here. This is not a safe place. Mm -hmm. This is not where I want to be. And so what happens is, when, we, when we're following this rule to essentially avoid discomfort, it gets us more into our head and out of our life. What I mean by that, it gets us more into trying to change our emotional state, trying to control it, as opposed to saying, you know what, I can hold this, I can be with this discomfort, and I can still drive my, my car, I can still run my life and move towards what's most important. So the, the, the most common rule that we all have is what's called experiential avoidance. We want to avoid discomfort. And what that does is when discomfort shows up, it's as if we have this light switch in our head. All right. And let's call it the struggle switch. So when discomfort shows up, when we're in a place where we feel shame, Andy, you talked about uh, personally, and I think you're okay with me sharing this, that when you're back in Windsor, you have a lot of traumas and challenges of, mm -hmm. you know, based on your lived experience there. And so yeah. And, but you've done a lot of work now. So as opposed to maybe turning on that struggle switch and wanting to control or get rid of that feeling of shame or sadness or whatever is associated with your experience there, 
you can turn off that struggle switch. It can be there and you can stay present in what's unfolding. And in the act of staying present, it gets us to, again, find meaning in the discomfort and to transcend it itself. Um, as opposed to perhaps when you used to have a harder time going back home in Windsor, when you would turn on that struggle switch, now it's not just say, let's let's say sadness. When we struggle with that sadness, now it's anxiety. Oh, is this sadness going mm-hmm. to stay, right? And then maybe we struggle with the anxiety. You know, my, my life is so good and I'm having a hard time just being home. Maybe there's shame and guilt, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the kind of, the primal rule we have to avoid suffering. And that gets us more and more stuck in our head and out of being able to yeah, truly run our life. So, And, and that, that would lead, sorry, I just want to add to that. And does that also reveal itself uh, and manifest itself through addictions? Absolutely. Great, great point. So where, where this is coming from, uh, this theory and this work is called acceptance commitment therapy. Uh, the founder of, of ACT for short is a gentleman named Stephen Hayes. Uh, amazing theoretical and clinical approach to supporting people uh, to, yeah, really get out of their head and into their life. And a lot of the research with ACT is around helping people overcome, again, anything they want to avoid. And, and tra- or sorry, addiction is very much so a path to how do I alleviate the suffering that I'm experiencing right now. And the, the, the most vicious part around experiential avoidance and addiction is that it works, right? Someone, you know, taking the drug or drinking will alleviate that suffering or alleviate that anxiety or, you know, someone not going out to take a risk to be seen uh, for a new job or a new opportunity or reaching out to someone they have challenges with, you know, it will work. It will alleviate the anxiety and the challenge in the moment. But what it does is it negatively reinforces more and more avoided behavior. Not only, and, and so it becomes even more challenging the next time to think about that person or to uh, to think about saying no to that drug. So absolutely, a lot of this research is with uh, addiction. Mm-hmm. Two quotes that come to mind, and what you're saying connects very deeply and strongly with Dr. Gabor Mate's work around the addiction is there to serve us and to help us. And as you just so eloquently described, to help us avoid the suffering, because suffering sucks, and nobody wants to sit in the suffering, and it hurts, and it's painful. So if I can have a quick remedy, such as hitting the bottle or taking drugs or some type of addiction, exercise addiction, whatever it is, um, that's going to help me avoid the suffering. But then it just it's an endless repeating cycle of of darkness that needs to be dealt with in order to truly move on so gabor's quote is the attempt to escape pain creates more of it and i think carl um carl young maybe this is his quote is the cave we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek Hmm. so you know really powerful quotes and looking at our fears and as you say avoiding suffering to avoid suffering you have to face the fear and enter the cave to find the treasure that will allow you to you know move forward in your life and in really empowering ways to reveal your true capabilities and and that connects deeply with i think your work and your passion and what you devoted yourself to and how you want to serve the world so take us into 
now the necessity of, of creating conditions for deep work and how this impacts our life and and uh, designing the conditions for for flow so maybe you can share the anything you want about flow the flow triggers yeah. the work yeah. that you've done okay yeah absolutely and before we move on there's one uh, last piece i want to share um around experiential avoidance and, and why it manifests and the challenge with with overcoming it is um and it comes back to that rule governed behavior so uh to find freedom in the external world, control works very well, right? So I give the example often of when we're driving a car and we have a flat tire. You know, you pull out the spare, you control the situation, you put the new tire back on, you're back on the road. Road. So control works very well in the external world to find freedom. However, to find freedom in the internal world, control is the exact uh <laughs> It's, it's the exact wrong approach uh, as a, because when we try to control our internal experience, our thoughts, our emotions, our memories, again, it creates this additional suffering and it gets us more into our head and out of our life. And so it's quite the opposite in our internal world to find freedom. We need to let go of control, be open, accepting and willing to experience whatever arises within that internal experience. And again, why it's so hard for all of us to, to do that work is because control gets reinforced in the external world. So we want to apply it again to our internal world. And so I, I say that uh, just also to kind of express that we're, we all suffer from experiential avoidance and we come by it uh, honestly uh, because it is, you know, it, it works in the external world, but just not in the uh, internal world. So, so let's, yeah, let's, let's get into flow. Unless you want, yeah. All right. No, so, no, that's good. Yeah, I think it all so, connects. So I love it. Yeah. So when we're talking about flow, what we're talking about is an it's really an altered state of consciousness. This is what gets me so excited about flow. We're not necessarily just talking about mental skills. We we use mental skills, but we're using mental skills to enter an altered state of consciousness when we perform and feel at our best. And why I love flow and how it connects to your podcast about running your life is that flow is really a path to liberate oneself. And, and what I mean by that is to no longer, or let me repeat that, it, path to liberate oneself by learning that the quality of one's experience is dependent upon their quality and their ability to control their consciousness itself. And so this is what we're doing in flow, in flow training. We're learning how to control the contents of our consciousness. Uh, and, and I mean it by control. Uh, it's funny because I've just been talking about the, the challenges with trying to control. Uh, we control the, the quality of our consciousness, not by forcing or demanding it, but by creating a context where all can arise. And so let me kind of talk a little bit more of what that looks like. So. Sure. We know that flow, again, is this optimal state where we get absorbed and engaged in the task at hand, whether it's runner's high, whether it's being locked in in a sport and unconscious, whether we're talking about you know going to improv or a jazz uh, musical or a concert when everyone's just locked in and engaged, both the band itself and everyone in the crowd, right? It's these moments where our sense of self 
kind of dissolves and we become one with the instrument we're using, the sport, you know, the basketball, the saxophone, uh, maybe the, the paper or the report that we're writing. So again, it's this transcendent altered state of consciousness where we go beyond our normal waking state of of, of consciousness to this kind of supernatural experience, this peak experience. And to talk about, to tie this back to the suffering we've been kind of exploring a little bit, the, the most amazing piece about flow is that it redeems all the suffering that we've been going through, right? Once we find a flow state in our life, whether it's in our sport, in our business, in our relationships, it gives a sense of meaning for all that we've gone through to figure mm-hmm. that out. And that's what's, you know, so rewarding about flow. So let me go a little bit into the mechanics of it. And anything you want to say just on that point, Andy? Yeah, I I was just, you know, and I'm sure that you'll get into this. And what really fascinates me is this this idea of the, the harsh inner critic, you know, the judging voice, the harsh voice within us is quieted in times of flow. And this is now, I think, based on my understanding, years ago, it was thought that this was happening, but neuroscience would suggest that the prefrontal cortex is actually shutting down, and I think it's called transient hypofrontality theory. So can you just frame up um, what that is, uh, that theory is, and, and how it relates to this idea of quieting the harsh inner critic as a very important part of slipping into a flow state? Yeah, well said. So this is research done by Arnie Dietrich. And essentially what he found uh, through brain scans is that when someone was engaged in a flow state, as you said, the frontal cortex, so the most uh, evolved part of our brain, really where a lot of our sense of executive function, a sense of self is stored, quiets down. And, and so he called it, as you said, transient hypofrontality. So what does that mean? Transient meaning temporary Hypo, meaning uh, kind of down regulation and frontality, so the frontal cortex. And so what happens with transient hypofrontality is that we shift from our conscious information processing to really our subconscious. And that's where we feel, again, at one with something, where we're moving from our gut, from our intuition, where we can rapidly come up with insights, our reaction time speeds up. Because again, we conquer the self. We're not running from the frontal cortex anymore. We're running from deeper brain structures where our skills are well-learned. They're second nature, right? Where we can play and act freely. So it's a yeah, a really great point on the importance of recognizing in flow, we're shifting from of executive functioning skills to what they call the performance uh, performance state from the unconscious, where we're just so much more effective uh, because we, we conquer that self, we get out of our head. And uh, yeah, was there any other pieces on that that I, I missed on the response there? No, it's just, I think it, it gives us a little bit of the neuroscience behind what's happening, but that's important to understand. I mean, if you're on the stage giving a speech thinking, right. oh my God, am, oh my God, am I going to screw this up? Or what are they thinking? Oh, and and you get those uh, times when you are so judgmental with yourself. How can you actually be performing at your best? Yeah. So I'm sure you'll get into the flow triggers that will share with people what they can do to create this condition with more consistency in their lives. So keep going. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks for reminding me of that. And and so. 
part of the neurochemistry of flow is uh, a release of a, a endocannabinoid called anandamide. So this is uh, again similar to like smoking a joint, and we yeah. all know that uh, maybe not always, but for most of the times, there's a mood elevation there, and there's an extinction of fear for a lot of people mm. when when they smoke a little bit of uh, pot, and so. Uh, that is part of the kind of this powerful neurochemistry we can get into around flow is and why it helps us relieve uh, fear itself. Uh, so let's, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more. Well, I'll share all the neurochemistry of flow first and, sure. and then we'll the mechanics of how to trigger flow. And so we know again in flow, there's this shift from conscious processing, hyper uh, activation, the frontal cortex to deeper brain structures. There's a quieting of the brain. So as we've all probably heard in some regard, we use less of our brain, not more, or at our peak. The neurochemistry of flow is very interesting. So there's a, there's dopamine, heightens uh, attention, reward, and that's really comes to the crux of flow is it's an intrinsically motivating state, which is why it's just such a powerful place to, to move from because we engage in the act for the sheer sake of doing it, right? And, and that helps with growth and perseverance and grit. So we get dopamine, we get norepinephrine. This helps kind of tune our focus, uh, helps us increase our energy or arousal level. Our heart beats a little faster. Our attention gets a little bit more narrow, helps us be engaged. Uh, and then as mentioned, there's anandamide, this kind of release of endocannabinoids. I think a lot of folks uh, on your uh, of your listeners will know runner's high, right? And that mm -hmm. runner's high, that's that moment where no longer your, your knees aching, your back is sore, uh, but you're feeling actually quite light, right? And you're feeling kind of pain-free. Uh, so there's anandamide, and then we get a release of, uh, of serotonin and on the back end of flow, which is this uh, state of kind of peace and tranquility. Again, mentioning how flow, uh, you know, redeems the suffering that led us to, to get there. And the other uh, neurochemical I forgot to mention is uh, essentially adrenaline or epinephrine. And so that also helps uh, increase arousal attention. And so all these, these neurochemical are considered uh, perhaps the most addictive state. These are all pleasure-seeking uh, neurochemicals. This is, you know, very rewarding, and that's why we seek flow over and over again, uh, for for better or for worse. And so, how do we find flow? Let's get out of kind of the science and the neurochemistry, but get to the practical. And mm -hmm. and maybe before I do that, let's just explain a little bit more the subjective experience of flow. So there's a nice acronym called uh, STER. S T E R that summarizes the phenomenological experience of flow. So S stands for selflessness. As we've talked about, we transcend a sense of self. Uh, timelessness, time seems to speed up or slow down. I'm sure we've all been in those moments. Uh, I know a common example for me is uh, like a car accident or a close car accident where time really slows down. You, you know, mm -hmm. your processing is just so acute. Uh, so timelessness. Uh, E for effortlessness. So that's where you might be accomplishing something so incredibly difficult and challenging, but it feels like the easiest thing you've done. It feels just truly effortless. And then R stands, uh, stands for richness. So the experience is just so, uh, ex uh, so rich. It's so diverse. It's so... Uh, it's a good example is like looking up at the stars, right? The, the, the richness, mm -hmm. the 
beauty of the experience. And, and that's again, flow is defined as a state of going from chaos to order, a state of, a, of feeling and performing at our best. Uh, and it's really why it comes, why I love it in the workplace is flow is just engagement. We can consider it just being purely engaged in what we're doing. And that's, as we know, that's when we're at our best, when we're fully here. So talked a little bit about the neuroscience, the subjective experience of flow. Let's get into how do you actually trigger flow? How do you find more flow in your life? Uh, Chick sent me high, the founder again of flow theory, first identified kind of three triggers. So three principles that need to be in place in order to experience all those qualities of flow. The first is a clear goal. You know, if we're going to order consciousness, if we're going to take action, which flow is, we need to know where the hell are we going? So identifying a clear goal. Next, we need immediate and relevant feedback. We need to get some sort of feedback that's indicating we're moving towards that goal. And, and I'm going to give a good example here in a second of what that feedback might look like. Thirdly, we need to find what he called the challenge skill sweet spot. And this is considered the golden rule of flow. So we need our, our skill level and our skills to be engaged in a challenge that is slightly beyond our normal level, right? In order for us to be absorbed and engaged in what we're doing, we need to be using all of ourselves and we need to be you know, challenged so much that it's, it's wrapping our attention in the task at hand. And if we're not in that sweet spot of that challenge skill, optimal balance, right? If our skills are really high and the challenge is low, we're bored, we're disengaged. Or if the challenge is really high and our skills are low, we're, we're anxious, right? We're fearful. And so this is, you know, flow is actually quite simple. It's con consistently trying to determine and engage in activities that are using as much of our skills as possible and stretching uh, and, and by stretching ourselves through meaningful challenges. And so Brent, can I just, can I just time, yeah. time out there? Because for the listeners, for the educators listening to this and, and, you know, possibly the coaches as well, I think it's really important as an educator to get these conditions right in the classroom, because oftentimes teachers will deliver learning in a was one size fits all type of style. So take math, for example, okay, that the kids have to learn, of course, they have to learn certain math skills and be able to figure out math problems. But when you take a class of 30 students, they're going to have greatly differentiated needs. So when you talk about the challenge skills sweet spot, getting the students level of skill right, matching that with a relevant challenge, and then giving them some autonomy to explore in that space to figure out what that just right challenge is. So that's the work that I do with teachers. And I, I refer to it just as that, like a just right challenge. And I get teachers, I don't get teachers, I, I work alongside teachers to, to help them develop strategies to be able to do this. So when I'm teaching myself, I use a one to 10 scale. So if I pose challenges to, to my students, I will check in with them and say on a scale of one to 10, how difficult is this for you? 10 would be impossible. One would be easy peasy lemon squeezy, right? So getting them to be able to clearly identify the, the number that best represents the challenge. And I've done it so much over the years that the students know that they 
will try their best to be in that, you know, seven to eight zone or six to eight zone. That's a slight push for them, a stretch. So I think it's so, so important for teachers to understand everything you're saying and how applicable it is to every decision they make in the classroom, whether it's literacy, math, arts, PE, music, whatever it is. So I just wanted to drop that in there for the uh, listeners who are educators. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to learn more. Uh, and also my, uh, how old would I, would I have been in grade 10? My grade 10 self really wished you were my educator or consultant for my math teacher because I failed grade 10 math because I was way out of my challenge skill balance. And as yeah. a result, being so anxious and uh, yeah, so challenged by it at that point, I, I was, I, I disengaged. It was, it was, mm-hmm. it was too much for, for me. And I felt so incompetent that uh, at that point I didn't have the skill set to yeah, figure out how to move through that. So um, right. yeah, I, I appreciate that. Any other kind of uh, best practices you found Andy around finding that sweet spot of challenge skill balance and like helping students and teachers know how to yeah practice that or. Yeah, I, I think I just return back to just using that scale whenever possible. Um, and if it's coaching my clients or if it's working with students directly or working with teachers and and we're working on implementing a new strategy, I will say, how you know, how daunting does this seem to you on a scale of one to ten? I put everything as a as a scale so that they can identify where they're at at that scale so if it's easy for them no problem then we need to up level up the game and give them some deeper skills to work on so i think that's been my experience and i I can say with full certainty with students it absolutely works but it requires the teacher pulling themselves out of traditional ways of teaching to allow time as as professor guy claxton who wrote a book called um, the future of teaching and the myths that hold it back what he says is what's lost in teaching and learning nowadays, and this applies in, I think, in any kind of development, is the idea of exploration before explanation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. giving whoever it is when they're building a new skill set or trying to deepen their skill set, the opportunity mm-hmm. to explore, explore, explore be, before having to explain and have the right answer. And I think that's mm-hmm. a very important part of this process as well, to explore with non-judgment as well. Beautiful. I, I love it. It reminds me of, you know, the, the number one mistake that leaders make, I'm sure teachers as well, is um, uh, trying to apply a technical solution to an adaptive problem, right? So trying mm-hmm. to apply just, you know, a process of doing mathematics, let's say, without kind of, you know, learning how the learner might learn itself or uh you know giving the problem over to the person the student the team to figure out how is this technical solution going to be implemented right what are the cultural norms of the team that might need to be adapted or changed and the the technical piece is always the easiest right it's easy just implement this process this method this uh, mathematical equation but it's the adaptive piece like how do we actually go through integrating this new tech or whatever again it might be into the culture of a business or into a team um, is, is always the more the more challenging. So to, to come back now to those three primary flow triggers, a good example that I think we can all um, relate to, unless you've got uh, listeners of your podcast that are, don't have their license yet and are very young, 
but I think most of us probably drive. And so I like driving is a good example uh, of, of these triggers. So when we're driving a car, we have a clear goal, right? We know where we're going. We have immediate and relevant feedback. So whether it's the friction on the steering wheel, whether it's uh, the sounds of the other cars, the sp speedometer, the lights, the, you know, everything is giving us feedback to, again, indicate, yeah, you're good. You're, you're moving in the right direction. And again, for the most part, we're, we're able to find that, you know, challenge skill balance, right? Maybe the more aggressive driver might go a little faster, might, you know, drive in a different way that someone that maybe doesn't have that sense of uh, skills on, on how to, you know, kind of take uh the car, the car to the next gear. And so I, I like, and a lot of people find flow driving. Uh, Chick sent me high, I believe called it the kind of the flow box for a lot of people. <laughs> and, and so um, those are the first three primary triggers. And again, what you alluded to, even with your example in education is that they're actually not that hard to put into place. Determining the challenge skill balance is, is very, like you said, I, I can use this 10 point scale. We can figure it out. Figuring out the immediate relevant feedback is actually not too difficult either. With a short discussion, you can figure out why is someone engaging in a task? What's what's this going to lead to for them and to ensure that, you know, when your teammate scores a bucket, you can give them the type of feedback that is meaningful for them. Uh, when your, your colleague or, yeah, your colleagues has a win, you can reference, you know, this is, you know, money in the bank for that project or that boat or whatever they might be seeking. Right. Um, so getting the appropriate immediate relevant feedback is not, is not too difficult. And so those are the, again, the initial three flow triggers. And now there's some additional ones that we, we can talk about before we get into the flow cycle, which is kind of how you put this into place. And then we're going to talk about doing deep work. So how do you structure a day where you can execute your highest goals with up to 5x your productivity. And this is going to bring together everything we've spoken about today, especially for those kind of corporate athletes. Those people on your podcast are looking to yeah, really take their, their business, their career to the next level. So what all the flow triggers do is they drive our attention to be present in the moment and they reduce the amount of cognitive load, how much information we are storing on our inner mind and on our inner brain, right? The brain is meant, if we're going to be finding flow, to be creative, to have insights, to think, not to store information. So again, what all these flow triggers do, including the ones we just spoke about, is they bring us to the present moment, the only place where peak performance occurs and what I mean, again, by peak performance, the only place we can control our consciousness is when we're here. And it reduces the amount of chaos, the amount of load on our brain. And so the other ones are novelty, right? So when we know that we go, let's say we're traveling uh, to a new country, when we're walking around, we get a lot of that neurochemistry that uh, we explored earlier. We get a lot of dopamine. We get a lot of rewards, a lot of connection. We get we're very, very curious. And so novelty is a good flow trigger, whether it's in the workplace and athletics and education, how do we increase the novelty, the unpredictability uh, of, of the environment itself will trigger us to, to be present. So novelty is a, a great one. I love awe as a, and, and yeah, awe as a state to trigger flow. So being, having a beginner's mind, being very open to what's occurring it really helps stimulate dopamine because if we have that expert mind right if we have a fixed rigid mind of 
how the classroom is going to be today or how the workplace is you know going to unfold or who my colleagues are we don't get a lot of novelty right we things are predictable and that's a not a very uh, effective way to get engaged in what we're doing so uh awe is a great flow trigger beginner's mind uh, we can go into social uh, risk so taking a risk whether it's uh, creative emotional i know andy you've, you've spoken a lot about trauma and, and some of the work of gabar mate and so we we can think about therapy we can think about group therapy we can think about just being vulnerable and open with others as is a way to take a risk and as a result that drives us to really be here right to really pay attention vulnerability or risk taking is a great flow trigger and i mentioned social kind of emotional risks but obviously physical risks at your own caution can uh, really trigger flow i can think about as a skier you know when i'm in the back country on the edge of a cliff like there's i'm not thinking about myself i'm not thinking about anything else in my life i'm just i'm just there right i'm just fully fully present um there's a number of other ones the one i want to just really make sure i hit here is a sense of autonomy we know that when we're when we're driving the bus right when when we're driving the car we pay more attention right so mm-hmm. as a teacher as an educator as a manager or leader how do we empower our staff, our people, to feel like they have a sense of control, because that is the experience of flow. We feel in control, right? We're running our own life. So how do Mm -hmm. we give over the keys to our employees and help them craft their job so that it's utilizing their their greatest skills so they can take on the biggest challenges? How do we allow our teammates to uh, show up fully authentic and express themselves in a way that helps them find flow and be uh, fully absorbed because they're not limiting their skills or not taking on the challenges that are important to them. Uh, so again, autonomy is in another really incredible flow trigger. Um, we can get into group flow. I'll just do that very quickly. And then I love your yeah, feedback. I actually have a, I really was hoping to discuss the group flow thing. Yeah. So, you know, this is where I have a, a, a lot of questions. I know we don't have a ton of time, but I, I, I love the concept of group flow because up until this point, we've talked about individual flow states and how to produce and design the conditions for individual flow states. And on your website, um, one of the quotes that you have up there is that you help to work alongside people in a way that helps to provide solutions to unlock flow, productivity, creativity, and well-being. So again, that can be interpreted as individually, but when we get our group dynamics right, so much can be accomplished in a business. And I know you do a lot of work developing leaders leaders and developing leadership capabilities. Another quote on your website is, I help professionals open the door to peak experiences such as flow state, mindfulness, gratitude, creativity, and love. So when you think of the work you do helping teams design the conditions for group flow, if I'm a leader taking your program or taking your uh, course or uh, workshop, what can I expect from you? How are you going to deliver your workshops in a way that are relevant to me and relevant to me bringing what I learned back to my team to help create the conditions for group flow? So I'd love for you to go there and share what people could expect taking your workshop and, and what they would develop. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to fit in nice to, I know we've been talking about deep work. So this is going to get yes. us to deep work and how to do that within a team. So I actually just had a, a great experience. I, I flew down last week to San Francisco to lead an offsite um, with a tech, uh, tech startup in San Francisco uh, around team flow. And uh, it was an amazing experience. What we know about team flow, first of all, is that it's more rewarding than individual flow. We get a more powerful neuro, neuro cocktail. Um, and so we actually, yeah, we seek team and group flow more than we do individual. And so there's a um, yeah, great value we, we place on it. So think about some of the uh, individual flow triggers I've shared so far. And now let's apply them to a group. So what we're talking about now is as opposed to us as an individual getting absorbed and engaged in what we're doing, what's happening in team and group flow is that we're getting it. Our sense of self is merging with our teammates, right? It's a, it's a, it's a sense of unity with our team and with our group. And, and it's this peak experience that, you know, we're going to talk about work or sport or whatnot, but I feel that group and team flow and social flow is, is really what we need in our society and culture to, to heal the divide, right? So we can think about this macro and, and micro. So uh, to find group flow or team flow, or they call it social flow, we need a shared goal, right? We need to, all be on board and moving in the same direction. Uh, we need to have equal participation, right? We need to all be engaged in this task or else again, we're not, our egos are not gonna merge. We need to have skin in the game, right? We need to all equal, equally have that risk, right? That consequence is if this doesn't work, uh, you know, we're all gonna face the consequences or we'll face the, the benefits together. So we need to, again, have equal participation and risk. Uh, we need to work together in a way that builds off of each other and doesn't destroy any of our colleagues. So a great principle to group flow, a great trigger comes from improv, actually, and it's called the, the yes and principle. So this is a very simple technique that managers and leaders can bring into their meetings is, you know, when Andy says something, an idea, even if I don't think it maybe is the best idea or the most effective one, my response to Andy is, yes, I, yes, this and this, I like, you know, this approach. And also how will it, you know, impact this piece of our business? That's important, right? So to build, make sure that conversations are building off of each other and you're not, we're not saying no to people and kind of, again, creating a sense of divide, right? This sense of, uh, our ego is not merging together. So just allowing free flowing thoughts. So yes, and this, yes, and that, and just allow these ideation um, sessions to occur where yeah, real creativity can, can emerge. Uh, hey, Brent, so I have two questions, two quick questions there. Sorry to interrupt, but I just, again, I would just want to unpack this further. And yeah. what you, you said equal participation, and this is, this is an important one to me because I, I have seen, uh, meetings where the loud voice takes over, you know, and there's there's such a uh, a pattern of meetings being run in a way where the people that are extroverted that have no problem sharing their opinion get the floor most of the time. So there are no protocols that are used to ensure equal participation. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is um, I'd like to know more about 
you know, you say equal participation, but there still needs needs to be um, certain skills that people have to equally participate. So, um, do you um, suggest using protocols to bring on equal participation? Yes. Yeah. So, so I ask that first. Yeah, great question, great point. And so there's a, there's a number of ways that we can do this. From like a technical piece, we can bring in little icebreaker games, right? Doing an improv, having a check-in where everyone gets to share right off the bat. So just, again, opening the floor right off the bat where people are, are all equally participating and, and priming people to do that. In a, in a bigger macro context, what, what I'm really talking about here is, is breaking down bureaucracies and, mm -hmm. and specializations and, and, and hierarchies and, and using the marketplace in a business. What I mean by that is, like, again, having the companies or the team's goals um, uh, not be uh, unequally sought after, depending on where you are in the hierarchy of a business, uh, but rather how we can recognize that each person in every role within the organization from the janitor to the CEO has an opportunity to make a massive impact in the business. And, and so that I believe kind of, again, breaking down bureaucracies, hierarchies, and, and creating self-managing teams where people aren't accountable to just their boss or their manager, but to each other is another great way to, to enforce and, and cultivate, I should say, um, equal participation, where again, I'm going to be rewarded, uh, even though I'm the lowest on the totem pole, if, if the company excels, right? If, if we, you know, and, and now maybe have a consequence if it doesn't. And, and so feeling that, that, that need to be part of uh, participating mm -hmm. can really foster that. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the biggest piece I would share though, and, and I really appreciate you kind of double click on this idea is, uh, research from Google, they did a 10-year study. A lot of research has come out in the, in the corporate space that psychological safety is the most important piece for people to be able to equally participate. And what that means is I'm willing, I know that if I bring an idea to this board meeting, uh, even if it's a wild, crazy idea and, and people, and it's not something we're going to run with, I'm not going to get kicked out of the tribe, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, they're going to I'm still going to be part of the team itself. And that's really, you know, what pulls people from often participating is they want to stay safe. They want to stay quiet and know that, you know, if I just nod my head and go with what my leader, or the manager, or the CEO is, is sharing that, you know, I'm going to be safe and I'll be able to execute. Um, the unfortunate reality around that and why bureaucracies are becoming more and more ineffective is that as the world is rapidly changing, teams and organizations need to be able to change as, as quickly as change itself. Mm -hmm. So when we're, when we're in these highly uh, stratified, specialized bureaucratic roles, uh, we're putting methods and processes first and not people. And people are actually good at change. So we want to create organizations that are as human centric and, you know, are like designed based off living systems, off nature. And that's how you, uh, yeah, really can adapt and, 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 and flourish, I, I believe. And uh, 
in, in times like this. So I went on a little bit of a rant there. No, no, that's um, okay. I have one more question just about yeah. that idea of feedback, because if feedback is important individually, feedback is important in a group setting. So if we're having a meeting and we have certain targets or aims or we're trying to get something done and it might be just brainstorming new ideas, it might be a dialogue, not a, a decision. A decision isn't the end product, but it might just be a dialogue. But in having the clear group goal, we know that at the end of this session, we're going to brainstorm uh, new ideas to take the company forward. Regardless of the purpose of the meeting, I think it's essential to have like an exit ticket strategy so that every participant walking away from that group session can provide immediate feedback to the facilitator mm. on did we achieve our aim today? You know, so mm. that ongoing feedback. So just share how you 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 get teams to access feedback in the moment i call it an exit ticket that's what we call it in education so every student can walk away leaving a sticky note at the door on mm. how their learning went or every person in a meeting can can rate the effectiveness out of the meeting uh, out of 10 you know kind of thing but just talk about the importance yeah. of feedback in that setting awesome andy i'm really enjoying our conversation this has been a lot of fun and I'm, I'm really like enjoying the flow that we're in here and uh, what we're exploring. So, you know, I'm going to go to a, a concept in, in counseling actually, and we're going to tie it back to teams and, and group flow. So in, as a therapist, you know, what I've learned is the most important piece and, you know, we can all use this, you know, in our relationships is it's so important to shift the conversation from just talking about the content of what's being discussed, the, the process, the method, you know, what happened to Bob or Sally over the weekend uh, to, to the process. So the process is like using in the moment here and now comments, like I actually just did with you and said, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling it, you know, so close to you in this moment. Are, are you feeling the same way or uh, this is so much fun, right? So changing the conversation from the content of what's being discussed to the process is a great way to uh, get that immediate and relevant feedback for us to adapt and adjust. And, and so I guess to come back to kind of illuminate what that could look like more for a team or a group that might be working for me, it is, as you said, building in those, those systems and methods where open communication is, is paramount. So uh, actually the second part of that offsite I led we went into the technical pieces of flow, individual and group flow, deep work, which we're all going to get to here in a second. And we just did interpersonal communication. We focused on how do we share with each other things that are challenging, that are difficult? How do I give that feedback? And so there's two methods that uh, I've used and found quite helpful. One's called the SBI method. So this is me identifying, you know, with you, Andy, you know, there is a situation. So S stands for situation where this and that happened um, in that situation. I'm going to talk about your behavior. So in that situation, I, I, I wanted to participate. I had my hand up in the meeting and uh, you didn't call on me and you called on, on everybody else. Um, now I'm going to talk about the impact. I, you know, the impact of that is I felt disengaged from the meeting and I didn't really want to participate so much. So that SBI model, model situation behavior impact is uh, what we were really training this team to learn how to more effectively communicate. And I, I got to say, it's 
it's so fascinating sitting with a team and talking and practicing communication because we think we communicate all day we think it's something we know how to do but then when you're sitting there and and you know someone says you know john the first time we met in the lunchroom i made an off comment about you know single children you know who who didn't have brothers or sisters and then i realized later in the day you were a single child and it's been three years we've worked together and i've always thought that that impact our relationship or whatnot like the little things that we mm-hmm. hold on that cognitive load so yeah psychological safety open communication is a is a really big piece of, of feedback mm. that connects with um nonviolent communication yeah. yeah that was the the second process i was going to share on communication so go ahead uh, go ahead yeah so so nonviolent communication is another amazing template for communicating especially when you don't want to put someone on the defensive and you you, you have a clear kind of request so first with the SBI model um we 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 practice responding in a way that's just just acknowledging what the person said so just providing active uh active listening so uh you know Brent it sounds like you know when I didn't call on you it it was upsetting and led you to to be disengaged is is that right and then the person saying you know yeah yeah that's 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 what happened and just that can heal so much right can feel people feel heard and, and, and so now to get into nonviolent communication, here's, here's four ways, uh, four steps, sorry, uh, to implement nonviolent communication. So you can write this down. So first is the observation, what you observed. The second is the feeling and how it made you feel. The third is what you need. So your need. And the fourth is your request. So it might go a little something like this. So, you know, Bob, I observed in the meeting that everyone who had their hand up was called upon except for me you know in that moment i i felt upset and frustrated as a result and i and i felt that way because i need to know that i'm valued as a team member and that uh, you know people appreciate what i bring to to this organization and now the request you know i'm wondering if you'd be willing to just be a little bit mindful of you know when i have my hand up or to make sure you're engaging me uh, in, in our meetings. So again, observation, feeling, need, and request. And the best part about this is it's a clear observation and we own our need and we own our feelings. We say, I felt this way. So we're just using I statements, not saying you made me feel this way, but this is you know how I felt in that moment. And, and that putting out a gentle request, would you be willing to or, or whatnot? So yeah, have yeah. you used not communication before or? I've read it and I've, my wife and I have both read it and we've used it with each other um, as, as part of um, being able to express ourselves in healthy ways. And we kind of laugh when we do it and it seems kind of corny, but, but it's like such a skill, as you say, because you've said it, you hit the nail on the head when you said that um, we think that we just communicate all day, that we know how to communicate. But when you really break down, um, a protocol such as this observation feeling need request you actually have to think very carefully about the words that you use and the more you practice these skills the more natural it becomes and it's such an important thing with building trust and and uh, charles feltman 
who is a world-renowned trust expert. Brene Brown has used his definition of trust in all of her work. And his definition of trust is, what is important to me is safe with this person in this situation or any situation, as opposed to distrust, which is what's important to me is not safe with this person in this situation or any situation. What you're describing is owning your feelings and being able to share your feelings as you just described the observation, feeling, need, request. That's a part of building trust and requires vulnerability and, and taking social risk and and um, making what's important to me. I need to know that's safe with you, right? Mm-hmm. And that creates know, a, that that, creates a yeah, culture. Know that it's safe and know that you understand, right? Like the yeah. active listening part is so important. Most of the time, people aren't actually hearing or they might have another interpretation of what they heard. And so like getting confirmation, like, John, is this what you said? You know, is a, is a huge. So I, and I love, I love those definitions. I'm going to use that, Andy. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, there's so much research around how trust is a peak performance booster for teams. And so, yeah, sorry to cut you off there a little bit. I have a question going back to deep work. So creating the conditions. So you've talked about um, kind of the, those group flow triggers um, and creating the conditions. What I'm really fascinated when I, work with leaders or I coach leaders is I ask them a lot of questions like, tell me what your, your meeting area looks like. The, I want to know the environmental design, but I feel that when you get the environmental design right, it would enhance our ability to reach group flow. So if I was to walk into a, a room or a meeting space what would that space look like environmentally? Like what is the optimal space or the best space to create the optimal conditions for flow or deep work? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. So I'm just going to reference back this offsite I led a few days ago and we started off the offsite and I like to start off my retreats with everyone uh, standing in a circle and linking arms with each other. And, and talking about how this, you know, the, the power of, and the symbolism of a, of a circle itself, right? How we're all connected. We all have the opportunity to look each other into the, in each other's eyes. Uh, how a circle represents not a beginning or an end, but like this infinity aspect. Um, how, how a circle, again, re- whether it's mimicking nature and the seasons, the stars uh, that are round and circular, uh, just you know, I, I try to create cultures and, and organizations that, yeah, mimic symbolism of, of a circle. And the last piece I'll share around a circle is that while there's a containment of, of the, the, the circle, it's the, it's the emptiness in the middle of the circle, which in, allows uh, creativity, ingenuity. It really represents that beginner's mind that is, again, such a key to finding flow. And, and so is like a it's a symbol the circle is is what i kind of fall on to and as far as like what would it look like going into a team offsite or training with me is you'll see a lot of sticky notes where mm-hmm. everyone's sharing their ideas I, i'll introduce a concept right we talked about technical and adaptive challenges earlier i might introduce the flow triggers everyone's going to have a chance to write down their key flow triggers group, individual, go up onto the board, 
post it up there, share with their team what those look like, what that means. And then we, so we shift from the technical teaching to the adaptive. So now they're processing it and then they communicate with the team. What would this look like for me? What would this look Mm -hmm. like for the group? And, And this again comes nicely to talking about deep work because Deep work as a concept, as a technical solution, is, is, is very simple. You, you have a day where no one can communicate with you and you're working on the highest leverage task and you have it broken down in a way so that you're in your challenge skill sweet spot throughout the day and you're monotasking. So you're just focused on one thing. Obviously, a lot of organizations, all of them, require people to be open to communicate and to be reached out to on Slack, on phone, on text, email, whatever it might be. And so people have a lot of challenge implementing doing deep work. And it might not be a full day, um, which is a challenge I I put on to everyone to try to do at least, you know, once a quarter. Uh, But maybe it's even just a, a two, a 60 to 90 minute block every day where people, again, have the cognitive the state of consciousness where they can reduce all their cognitive load and just be fully absorbed in one task. And so the adaptive work, the teamwork is like, how do we protect each other's boundaries? How do we recognize that because John or Sally is not able to communicate right now, I can trust that she or he is doing what's most important. And not only that, they're going to be able to accomplish so much in that 60 minute or that whole day they're taking uh, to do deep work so much that's going to you know boost the productivity and the growth and the 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 output per input for our company uh that's going to yeah be remarkable and so um again deep work is simple it's breaking down your your most highest leverage task creating a day that's all mapped and planned out including what you're wearing what you're eating you know the recovery blocks you're going to do throughout your day and eliminating all notifications, having your phone out of the office, maybe going to a, a an office space. I like WeWorks, uh, working out of WeWork in an office and, and just executing in that, that high, hard goal. And um, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, Andy. And then we have to go back quickly and just talk about the flow cycle as we forgot yeah. to mention. Yeah. yeah, I would love to to hear that and talk about that. Um, I guess m- the thoughts that come to mind is psychological safety. So for me, feeling safe to say, this is my time. It, I can't be interrupted because I'm doubling down on what I need to do right now to produce my best work for the common cause of the organization, whatever it is. So psychological safety to say, please don't interrupt me. <laughs> this is my yeah. time trust in that yeah. you know my higher ups or my my colleagues will will trust in me that I'm doing the work I'm not watching you know highlights of the Super Bowl <laughs> or, or highlights of the open championship coming up this weekend but so there's there's that element of psychological safety and trust mm-hmm. so those need to be in place to create these conditions. So the the conditions for deep work don't just happen. It begins with psychological safety and trust. And I think that's everything you've been saying um, emphasizes that. So that's what's what's on my mind um, that I wanted to share. And on on that, so about the Super Bowl. So this is when I talk about doing that like whole day in flow, right? So having like 
three or even four three-hour work blocks where you're uninterrupted, you're focused, no interruptions, like a whole day to do deep work. Um, I, I always talk about it. It's as if you have the Super Bowl the night before. It's like because of the level of intentionality you've put into preparing for that day, because you've mapped everything out, you know, right when you wake up, it's like, okay, it's game time. Like yeah. you're going to be primed to be present. You, the intentionality you've put into that day is going to create that sense of order, right? That controlling of our consciousness and finding flow. And so I, I had to say that just as you mentioned the Super Bowl, because that's my experience. Yeah. When I have a deep work day, I'm like, all right, here we go. Tomorrow's a big fucking day. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. And I think the thing also is this idea of um, decision-making fatigue, which which you mentioned. So there's, you didn't just throw it out there to know what you're eating, know what you're wearing, you know, know all these things in advance. It really is the neuroscience of reducing cognitive load and decision-making fatigue so that our brains are operating at its their highest capacity, right? Yeah, I'd like you to just share a little bit about that and then we'll go into the flow cycle so the idea of decision making fatigue and the impact that that can have on our ability to do deep work yeah um thanks andy so why first of all deep work and i'll tie this into your question here is we live in a in the age uh, where there's increasing volatility unpredictability complexity and ambiguity in the workforce. And so I'm, I'm specifically talking about to in the workforce right now. And so what that means is that there's increased chaos and how that impacts our nervous system is that we're in haywire. We're not in homeostasis. We're not in a, a place where we can get fully absorbed because things are speeding up. Things are unpredictable. It's hard to be clear what's going on outside. And that's that's pretty tough on the nervous system uh, to, to feel regulated and safe and secure. And so, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here is, again, how to, how to have our nervous system work for us, not against us, how to reset our nervous system during times of chaos so that we can thrive. And the solution, as we've been exploring today, is in many ways flow. Again, flow is defined as a state of moving from chaos to order. So it's a perfect fit in the workforce uh, for those who are, again, in the academics and who are in experiencing increased chaos. To go back to your question, so again, we talked about cognitive load. Essentially, when we're shifting task or we're shifting environment, each time that pulls us out of obviously being present, and it puts us into a new state of having to, to become aware and integrate everything that's occurring around us. And that takes a lot of cognitive capacity. It's like, you know, shifting from one environment to the next. We need to reset. We need to see if I'm safe. What's the goal here? What's the feedback here? Am I in my challenge skills sweet spot? As much as we can reduce decision-making, the more we could preserve the brain for thinking, for being creative on our task and not for, you know, elements that aren't relevant for the goal at hand. And, and so, um, you know, I'll give it a good example of like cognitive load and decision-making. So uh, I'm not sure about with you, Andy, but when I have my phone on my desk or even at a table, when I'm having a meal with a friend, it weighs on my mind. And, and so I'll, even if I just flip the phone over, put it upside down, it reduces a little bit of my cognitive load. Uh, you know, my brain's not working so hard to suppress my curiosity if I've got a text or a message or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. 
And then, so imagine, you know, obviously much better, take the phone, put it in my pocket or put it, leave it in the car. And so all mm. those are like, it, it's not necessarily reducing, it's reducing my decision-making by preventing the, mm. even the opportunity for me to make a decision of looking at my phone. So mm. a lot of flow trains like around elimination of, of tasks, elimination of decisions, automating things in our life and just reducing that, that friction. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And that is so important. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because you gave some examples of what that day would look like with, you know, knowing what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear type of thing. So that is emphasized through what you just said. So moving into the flow cycle now for the listeners to understand uh, what it is and, and how it works. Yeah, and, and I know we've been going for a while, so uh, much respect to everyone that's listening in here, uh, that's staying a- along this journey of exploring flow and flow in the workplace and academics. And I really want to make sure we hit this piece of the flow cycle because you've learned the flow triggers, you've learned about deep work, and, and the flow cycle is really how you implement it all to, again, consistently be able to drop into, into flow and not burn out not become too overwhelmed or anxious, but and to, to find flow and high performance over the long term. And so these are the four stages of flow. We'll go into them very quickly and look at how we can apply them. So the first stage is the struggle stage. The second stage is the release stage. The third stage is the flow stage. And the fourth is the recovery stage. So what does this mean? What does this look like? Let's imagine the struggle stage is you sitting down to complete a report, whether it's you're in academics or in business, and and you're getting kind of overloaded with everything you need to synthesize and put together. So this is the struggle stage where your brain's becoming a little agitated, a little bit of cortisol's uh, you know arising. You're kind of shifting into a beta brainwave. So again, you're a little bit irritated, and and you're this is the essentially like the cognitive overload place you're you're intentionally overloading yourself with all the information you're taking on and then right when you've kind of overloaded and been prepared you prepared enough for the task at hand you intentionally go for a release and what this release is is really an opportunity to let your unconscious incubate on everything that you've been reading and preparing for this report Right. So this is you going for that hot shower, going for the walk around the block, you know, getting your mind completely off the task at hand and just trusting, just trusting and knowing that your brain has the, the capacity to come up to with the solution uh, for that report, how to best write it. And so I'm sure many of us have had that moment, right, where we've been struggling, working all night. And whether we go to sleep or whether we go for a hot shower and the idea comes right then, right? Mm-hmm. And so we go for that intentional release. And then the next stage, the flow block is, okay, I've done my struggle. Everything's lined up, prepared for this report I'm doing. I've released. I'm getting my neurobiology again to now work for me because I'm getting rid of that cortisol. I'm shifting back into alpha. I'm getting, letting my nervous system rest. We get a hit of nitric oxide, helps with creative thinking, pattern recognition, so we can come back and sit down and just crank out that report. We've built in the eliminative notifications, the boundaries, uh, so that we can be just fully focused, execute on that task in flow, 
We've talked a lot about flow. And then the fourth stage is just the recovery stage. So this is uh, really a time to recharge our, our neurochemistry. We know that flow is in a state we can stay in infinitely because these neurochemicals need to reset and recharge. So a recovery stage might look like uh, going for a workout, going for a nap, uh, having a massage. It's, it's again, it's time to, to reset and, and to recharge and so that we can take on the next, next struggle. Right. And so as I work with teams or, uh, you know, especially within the workforce, it's like, how do you structure your day? So you're intentionally going through these flow blocks. Maybe it's a flow block in the morning around fitness and, and well-being. And then it's a flow block, you, you know, first part of your day for your highest leverage task. And then maybe there's one in the afternoon and, and maybe there's one more. And the, the last recovery leads into, you know, the rest and, and being present for family and, and loved ones and just really hyper-focused on, yeah, just rest, rest and recovery. And, and so those four stages of flow is a great tool for everyone that's listening, whether you're an academic, whether you're an employee or a leader to, to again, effectively work in a way that will have your neurobiology work for you, not against you, where you're not battling against being overwhelmed or exhausted, but rather you've put yourself in a physiological state where you're able to best perform. And, and so, yeah, I love playing with the flow cycle. And I'll just give one more example for me, how this flow cycle kind of plays out in, in running. So for me, when I start to run, I'm sure every athlete here knows, uh, yeah, whether you're running, cycling, working out, it's, it's, it's painful at first, right? So for me, my knees, again, my back, everything is like, this is a struggle, right? This is a mm -hmm. challenge. Um, for me, about 20 minutes into that run, I, I start to just release into the run, meaning for me, I'm getting my mind off of my body. I'm getting my mind off how well I want to run, the speed I want to get. And I'm just, uh, for me, I just get present. For me, when I'm running my release is like, I'm looking at nature, I'm looking at what's around me and my nervous system just calming down. My breath will calm down. And then about 30 minutes or so into the run, then I, then I start to feel runner's high. Right. That's when I'm starting to get into flow. And that's when I'm able to push it. That's when I'm able to go home, you know, a lot faster. I feel more confident. I feel a sense of euphoria. And, and then obviously at the end of the run, you get a chance to recover and rest. And, and so learning how to use that flow cycle and really kind of live like a lion. So go hard when it's time to go hard and rest and recovery when it's time to rest and recovery, I think is a sustainable way for, for us to find peak performance and, and also to be most connected with people in our life, right? When we leave the office or leave the team, leave the university or wherever we may be studying and know that this is a time for rest and recovery and being present with people. Um, I think it can protect against a lot of those kind of dark side elements of flow, mm -hmm. just being hyper goal oriented and not connected with others. So, yeah. I love the idea of the cycle. So it is like you can complete a cycle in the morning you can complete a cycle in the afternoon. So it's, not, or it could be a whole day. Like, so there's not a one size fits all, like it depends on the task. But what you're saying is in preparation to do the task and trying to get your head around the task, whatever it is, that's, that's the struggle piece. But to really build in that release time, which is, as you said, a quick walk or a snack or a chat where you're just no longer thinking about it, returning back to the work is where the good stuff happens. 
And you do that by specifically designing the conditions, as you say, not having your phone there, not being interrupted by emails to create an environment that allows you to do that deeper work, that flow work, followed by recovery is an important part and, and regenerating and recharging. So, yeah. And, and also you, you spoke about earlier in the classroom for you, right? Really trying to just simply ask, like, where are we in that challenge skill sweet spot, right? With the students mm-hmm. and, or with the colleagues, you can also ask, where are we in this flow cycle right now? And you can mm-hmm. point to, Oh yeah, we're in the we're in the struggle right now. This is a hard, this is supposed to be challenging. This is supposed to be yeah. difficult. Right? So you can you can also help people become cognitively literate of the flow cycle and start to again embrace the struggle. And the best part, I, I just I can't say this enough, Andy. And it makes me emotional actually even thinking about it. Um is that the flow that we experience as a result of going through the struggle redeems the struggle itself mm. and so like i get i told you i did this corporate offsite last week and um there was a fucking struggle to prepare this and it was a struggle to get there it was a struggle to learn in particularly how to make it as engaging as possible and um for folks again to stay out of just the technical but to really focus on the adaptive challenge how to implement flow into the culture and when I saw it occur throughout the day, and at the end, when I was reflecting on on the on the day, um, yeah, I brought tears to my eyes just knowing, you know, we we found flow and that redeemed the struggle the night before when mm-hmm. I wasn't I was trusting that something would come in the morning, and I woke up, you know, four in the morning, and and the idea came. It just it redeemed all the struggle, and and that's why it's so important to to honor the flow cycle um, because if we don't honor the flow cycle we give up on the struggle too soon or we don't intentionally release we're not going to be able to get into flow we're going to get locked out of finding the reward for for doing that struggle right for finding flow and so i think it's really important to consciously implement that in our, in our life is reflection a part of the recovery process to you it's, I'm so I was thinking about wanting to share. Chick sent me high again. The founder of Flow Theory said that uh, obviously action and reflection are complement each other, and and flow is very much so a, a state of taking action. Again, we talked at the beginning of today of falling into the river, taking action, being swept up. Um, but he said that the path to a good life is by over-indexing more on reflection. Right. So the guy that created a theory on taking action and the importance of and how to do it effectively articulated that the path to a good life, to sustainable flow, and, and most important in, in my view is to find flow when things are leading to a good life. Uh, we have to overdex more and more on, on reflection. So absolutely you can build that reflection into the recovery block. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So I want to segue into um, the end of the show and you just having a chance to share your upcoming workshop, which I wish I could be at. I will be at one of them one day. I promise you that. Uh, But you have uh, something called an event called the Vancouver Flow Festival that's being held next Friday uh, Mm -hmm. through next Sunday. So Friday, July 15th through Sunday, July 17th. And that's being held, obviously, in Vancouver. But yeah, just talk to the listeners about what what it is you intend on um, delivering through that experience. Uh, in case they are curious one day to, you know, I'm sure you're going to replicate this festival, learn from it, and repeat it. So anybody listening, 
could potentially uh, attend one of your trainings one day. Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. So this, uh, the Vancouver Flow Festival is the inaugural event of a new project uh, called A Tribe Called Flow. So A Tribe Called Flow is essentially this recognition that we are all seeking flow in our lives, whether it's in academics, in, a, in the workplace, in sport. And so again, coming back to recognizing that when we're in a flow state, we are the most united. We feel at one with other people. I want a tribe called flow and to be an opportunity to create spaces and experiences where people are recognizing the shared goal that we all have of finding flow. And so tribe called flow is going to be putting on these micro events. I'm going to share with you now, I'm I'm going to be doing these all around the world through different WeWorks, giving these presentations on kind of finding flow in the workplace at different WeWorks around the world. So on the Friday night, we're going to be at WeWork at 5th and Main in Vancouver. And I have a speaker series uh, of a number of entrepreneurs, amazing panel of entrepreneurs, including uh, one of my old colleagues, Dr. Chris Bertram, head of Canada Snowboard Performance and Exos, uh, a flow coach as well, and a number of entrepreneurs sharing their personal stories of, of how they've come to find flow in their careers and, and really exploring this concept of how do we create organizations that help all people flourish, kind of really building on that theme we spoke about earlier about breaking down bureaucracies and creating what we might call like a humanocracy. So we have a speaker series uh, and then we're going to have a community dinner. So going to a nice fun restaurant. So time to again, deeply connect on and with others this Saturday, we're going up to Squamish, about 40 minutes out from outside from Vancouver. And we're going to be right on Squamish River, surrounded by mountains and forests, untouched kind of secret location where uh, we're going to have a hot wood-burning sauna right on the river's edge. And we're going to have ice, ice baths where the river water is getting pumped into the ice baths. And we're going to do a bunch of hot and cold therapy. Essentially, it's a day of really deep rest and recovery. We're going to be integrating a little bit of fitness and yoga and definitely doing some breath work as well to really, again, just the whole kind of concept is around connection for, for folks in the workforce, but also how to optimize your weekend so that, you know, you're fully rested and recovered for the week ahead. And, um, and then the Sunday, uh, this is, uh, a day where we're going to do a, an optional run here in Vancouver around the Vancouver seawall, uh, followed by a beach cleanup and a group meditation. I, again, the whole concept here about being a tribe called flow, a tribe of flow is, is, is giving back, right? It's connecting and recognizing, you know, whatever, what are our shared goals? And I think we all want to protect nature and protect and, and honor environment. And to do that together, I, I think it's just, Again, a great way to build community. And so we're just starting off again. This is my inaugural event for a tribe called Flow. Talk about uh, being in the struggle stage and taking mm-hmm. a risk and putting yourself out yeah. there. I've been in that for the last few weeks and uh, learning a lot, challenged a lot, staying out of the negative thoughts and concerns about how things will unfold. And uh, I'm going to watch a few of the dreams tonight and just believe that if we build it, uh, they will come. And so that's, uh, yeah. So that's the Tribe Called Flow, and that's the first event here uh, that we have coming up. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to um, share just the, the last question for you and then where people can find you on social media. And uh, the event sounds amazing. So I'll definitely 
uh, attend one day and us living abroad i know i'll meet you one day in person maybe someplace in europe or wherever it is but uh, my wife and i would love to attend one of those events for sure and the last question i have for you is i want to share my favorite quote and i'll send a picture of it and it's so important to us that we put it on a big chalkboard wall in our house right inside the entrance of the door and it's a beautiful quote by Dr. Jim Lair, who is a performance psychologist who's worked with 17 world number ones in their sport. Fascinating person. He's written um, a best-selling book called Leading with Character, The Power of Story. But his quote, um, he was on Tim Ferriss. He was on my podcast a couple of years ago, um, and I got him to talk about this quote, but he shared this quote on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast as well. And what he says is, the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. Mm. How well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller. And the stories we tell ourselves create our reality. So when you think of your journey and, and all the shit you went through and, and the things you experienced and the evolution and trajectory of your life, where you're going and your continued dedication to building the best person possible within yourself to be able to do that work down the road that you envision. How does that quote resonate with you and what's some last insight you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, it's a beautiful quote. It, it, it makes you emotional. I remember Andy in one of our first coaching sessions, you sharing that quote with me and, mm -hmm. uh, how much it hit me at that point and just how much I knew I was, um, yeah, working with someone with a great, uh, intentionality and like how intimate our work would be, because that that's what that quote does for me. It really brings me to like the depth of my being really to the depth of, of, of who I am. And, and it connects me to really like the child within me in many regards. And it's very fascinating. And, you know, a lot of, I work with high powered CEOs and executives or whatnot. And, and they like this concept of like, how do I play at work? Right. How do I allow this kind of inner child, so to speak, to say, yeah, this is fun. I want to keep doing this or yeah, guys, this is kind of boring. I, like I'm not going to be participating in this. This ex doesn't excite me. And so you know, for me, even with talking about a tribe call flow, that that inner voice is is that voice that wants to explore and adventure and to seek. You know, it's that voice that um, yeah wants to feel most alive at work or in my in my moment to moment experience. And I only feel that way when I'm unshackled by the tyrants of society that wants me to act in a certain way and conform and be overly socialized or shackled by my biology that wants me to just seek for pleasure and not seek for growth. And, and so that quote, yeah, it connects me to a deep sense of, of courage, of um, exploration, of um, that, that inner child that was willing to, to, to play and mm. not be concerned about the outcome, right? Like even with this tribe called flow event and everything that I'm starting off with this new venture, there's a lot of fear, right? There's a lot of like mm -hmm. 
thoughts of being embarrassed. Is anyone going to show? How's this event going to go? Blah, blah, blah. But that inner voice is saying, you know what? Let's, let's go for it. Let's, let's, let's mm-hmm. shoot for the fences here. And, and so, yeah, it connects me to a great, great sense of playfulness and, and, and yeah, inspiration. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote. And I think it's lovely. You have that on, on your chalkboard there. It's something that we know that positive psychology with which flow emerges from is, you know, Maslow was very much so a founder and leading thought thinker in this place. And he said, whatever a person can be, he ought to be right. Like whatever mm-hmm. someone can be, they ought to reach for the furthest of their potential. And only when we do that, uh, do we find consistent flow and, and the meaning we want in our life. And, and so, yeah, that, that quote brings up uh, a lot for me. Uh, thank you for awesome. sharing. Can you tell us where we can find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is just uh, brenthogarth.com. There again, I offer uh, one-on-one executive coaching. I do uh, team flow as we've gone into today. I love doing teamwork. Um, even with my one-on-one executives I work with, I love going into their organizations and and kind of helping them integrate flow science uh, into uh, their culture. And then I also provide... Uh, coaching and mentorship for coaches, a lot of psychologists, sports psychologists who are just really curious about how to enter this executive coaching space. I've been very privileged working with the Flow Research Collective over the last few years and really mastering how to provide kind of executive flow coaching is what I'm what I'm calling it. And so I love kind of mentoring others who are you know, they're skilled, they're uh, as counselors or therapists, and they're curious to understand the, the corporate landscape and how to kind of break into that and, and build a practice there. And so, yeah, just brenthogarth.com. You can follow me on uh, Instagram as well. I'm a little disorganized there, um, but uh, just Brent uh, period T for Thomas period Hogarth. You'll find me there. Um, more and more I'm getting engaged on LinkedIn. And so please uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. And my email is just uh, Brent Hogarth, uh, H-O-G-A-R-T-H, Brent Hogarth at gmail.com. And yeah, if you have any questions, curiosities around flow, if I can be of any help, please uh, feel free. If you just want to drop a note and let me know what you thought of the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, you'll find me on Twitter too. So I'm all over the place. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll put all that in the show notes. So again, I really appreciate our time together and and my thinking, like I don't really set out with any intention in my podcast in terms of length. This is a, a longer form uh, conversation. And I really feel like I always say like those that find value in it, if they're going for a run and they're like, that's a great conversation, then they have to go to work. They can pick it up where where they left off. So whether they listen to this in three bite-sized chunks or they listen to it in one full go, I know people are going to find tremendous value in the conversation. And, you know, our work together has meant a lot. And we first worked virtually when I was in Saudi Arabia and you were in Canada and now I'm in Canada, but on the other side of the country and we're, we're still connecting. And I think your work is amazing and your story is amazing. And I look forward to seeing where your journey continues to take you, Brent. Thank you, Andy. And I want to say also, um, you know, the quote that you have on that chalkboard around, can't, I don't know it uh, by, by by word here, but the I want to just honor that part in you, that deep part of you that is is listening and, and acting and moving from that authentic voice. Every time you 
open yourself up to be vulnerable and share your experience and putting yourself out there, even with your podcast, everything you do. I just, it's that deep, meaningful relationship that emerges from you going to that place that is so, yeah, it's so, so nice to be around. It's so refreshing and it's, uh, yeah, it, it drops me into flow, right? Every time we go there. So thank you for listening to that voice and uh, bringing in all the work and the coaching and the uh, teaching that you do. This has been a lot of fun for me. So thank you, Andy. Uh, I'm so glad we got to do it again. I look forward to meeting in person. Yeah, me too. I'm going to close off the show and uh, we'll, we'll just say our goodbyes. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Brent Hogarth. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.